listening to the Business of Baking podcast with Michelle Green, the small business podcast that's all about successfully running your own sweet food company without losing your mind. If you've ever brought dessert to a party and been told you can make a fortune selling those, then you're in the right place. This is an honest, straight-talking podcast about the highs and lows of being in small business. Fueled by late nights, crazy client stories, and a permanent sugar high, we're going to listen, share, and learn our way to sweet business success. Here's your host, writer, speaker, recovering cake decorator, and incurable sweet tooth, Michelle Green. Welcome to the Business of Baking Podcast. I'm Michelle Green, your only host. I've only ever been the only host for this show. I don't know why I feel the need to introduce myself when the very nice voiceover lady does it for me. Anyway, now you know it's me. It's me. I'm back. Today we're talking flavors. Actually, I got this question from one of my followers, Pia, and I love it because it actually makes me laugh, but there's also some really great learning opportunities in here. So without further ado, let's talk flavors. She says, her question was this, why do people always go with either chocolate or vanilla? Is it even really necessary to offer anything else? On the other hand, how many options is too many options? Do we really need strawberry cake with pineapple buttercream and whipped white chocolate ganache on our menu at all times? Firstly, Pia, let me say that the idea of strawberry pineapple white chocolate, I can't decide if that's delicious or disgusting. I'm really not certain, other than it sounds very sweet. So let me just, I know you were kidding. Let me just say, I haven't decided if that flavor combination is a great idea or like the worst idea that I've ever heard. So my own opinion is a broad, okay? Like why do people only offer this? Now, any of you who have been in this business for a while, regardless of the product you sell, know that you have this beautiful menu with like all these great options and people come to the tasting and they taste like your pineapple, strawberry, white chocolate creation. Like, oh, that's so delicious. I love those flavors, blah, blah, blah. And then when you say, okay, what flavor would you like to go? I think I'll just go with the chocolate. Everyone likes chocolate, right? Firstly, not everyone likes chocolate. Like, that's just ridiculous. She asked me, like, why do they pick that? So they picked that for a couple of reasons. I think first they picked it because they don't want to offend other people or upset or irritate or annoy other people. Ultimately, when it comes to weddings, we want to believe it's about the bride and the groom, don't we? But the reality is so different. We're picking food we think our guests will like. We're picking booze we think our guests will like. We're picking a band we think our guests are going to dance to. And cake is no different. We want to pick things that we think other people will like. And just because we like eating coconut, jam, berry, and whatever flavor, we think other people don't like cool flavors like that. We think that they just like the simple stuff. Everyone likes chocolate, right? So I think we order the boring stuff or people order the boring stuff because they think they will offend or upset the least number of people. And also they're more likely to eat it. And if we're going to be spending hundreds of dollars on this wedding cake, we want it to get eaten. And we can mostly be sure that chocolate and vanilla are going to be eaten, but we can't really be sure that, you know, white chocolate, pineapple, meatloaf surprise is going to be eaten. Did I just say meatloaf? Okay, do not order meatloaf wedding cake if you are listening to this. I don't know why the word meatloaf just dropped out of my mouth. It's very bizarre. Anyhow, so I think that's one of the reasons. They don't want to offend. They don't want to upset. They figure most people will like this. It's really simple. And I think one of the other reasons, you actually hit the nail on the head there, Pia. One of the reasons why people order the plain flavors is because they get paralyzed or overwhelmed by choice. So we show up and we're like, you can have the watermelon, passion fruit, rose water, raspberry, whatever, or you can have chocolate. And I think they get overwhelmed by the amount of options that we give them. We just say, you can have this, you can have that, you can have the other. And by the time they've eaten 16 kinds of cake and 45 fillings, 
they're just kind of like, I don't even know what to choose. It's all starting to taste the same to me now. By the way, hot tip for you, when you're doing a tasting, even if your menu has 87 flavors on it, I would not be offering that many. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit more detail a little bit later in the show. But just FYI, people get overwhelmed by choice. That's why, especially when you're even parenting tip for you as well, don't ask your child an open-ended question, what would you like for lunch? Be like, would you like the nuggets or would you like the salad? Like A or B. Sometimes C if you're feeling generous, but don't ask too many questions because people get paralyzed and overwhelmed. And when that happens, their default is to go with what's familiar and what's comfortable and what they think other people will order. So that's why I think people only ever order plain. Now, personally, when I was a bride, I didn't care what other people thought of my cake choices. I ended up picking a lemon sponge cake that was filled with a lemon curd because I really like lemony things and I had a summer wedding. So I went with what I liked as a bride. And to be honest, everyone else liked it too. Now, to be fair, it's not like lemon is something weird or freaky, but it's neither chocolate nor vanilla. And I wanted something that was light and fresh and a good way to end the meal. And that's what I got. And I you know, I always say to brides who say to me, like, I don't know what I should order. Maybe it's just good chocolate everybody likes. I say, your wedding, your rules, man. You should go with what you enjoy. Yes, those 110 other people got to eat it, but you have to eat it and you have to be happy with it. And this is your wedding. Let them order chocolate at their wedding, right? So I was the kind of bride that went, I'm going with what I like and everybody else can just, if they don't like it, they can suck it, right? I don't care. But not everyone is like that. Then I became a cake maker. And let me tell you what happened to my fancy menu. So when I started the business, I put all kinds of like chocolate and vanilla and, you know, white chocolate and then white chocolate raspberry. And then I had carrot cake and I had banana cake, I think. And I had red velvet and I had, what else? I had all sorts of like interesting, cool flavor combinations and fillings and all sorts of stuff because I come from a pastry background. You know, I'm a pastry chef. And so to me, all those beautiful flavors, you know, rose water this and you know, yuzu that and I don't know, just kind of cool stuff was totally my thing, right? And so I had all these beautiful, fancy, fancy flavors. But what invariably happened with my fancy menu is that I went to all this time and effort to create beautiful, amazing flavors. People would come to a tasting, they would eat my yuzu white chocolate and whatever creation, think it was the most amazing mouthgasm they'd ever had in their lives, and then say, oh, we better just stick with the chocolate because everybody likes chocolate. And it used to irritate me to no end. Like, just used to make me crazy. And so over time, I ditched the vast majority of my fancy menu because nobody was ever ordering it. I was just spending all this time making these beautiful things, caring so much about the flavor balance and the acidity and the blah, 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 wanky stuff. And nobody else cared. And I realized that every time I had to go and bake one of those, I'd get irritated, <laughs> which I feel bad admitting, but that's the truth of it is that I would feel like I spent all this time creating this beautiful flavor. Nobody ever orders it. And then the once a year when somebody orders it, I got to go and make it. And if any of you have been listening to the podcast for a while, you would have heard me confess my story <laughs> about the cake that I bought from somebody else and scraped the icing off because I didn't want to bake that one flavor again. Yeah. In case you're wondering, that is appears in the podcast episode by all means necessary, where I admit that I had great flavors and I didn't want to bake it after a while because it annoyed me when people ordered it after I'd been making chocolate, vanilla, whatever for so long, right? So my fancy menu died. Well, I killed it. I didn't really die. I killed it. And in the end, I had a number of really great solid flavors and I had a couple that were a little left of center. So for example, here in Australia, red velvet is not a thing. It's an American flavor. It's not an Australian flavor, but that's a pretty easy one for me to make. And so I kept that on my menu as sort of like an exotic or special thing. 
easy, quick to make, tasted amazing, all that kind of stuff, but wasn't kind of so fancy that I was constantly having to like go and buy one passion fruit or whatever. So yeah, I killed my fancy menu because nobody wanted it. But I'm going to explain to you in a minute why I killed that fancy menu. I mean, the question is, should you have a fancy menu? I think you can and you should, but I think you can and you should only if you meet these two criteria. One, that that flavor profile is part of your niche, as in it's one of the ways you stand out and you plan on marketing the heck out of that. So if you want to have super exclusive, amazing, interesting flavors, I'm all for that, but you need to own that niche and you need to market the heck out of it as the reason why people should come to you. I think flavor or flavor combinations can be part of what you niche in. And I think if it's going to be, then you got to put the hard yards in to really push that. And I think the other part of that is if you want to have a beautiful, fancy menu with beautiful, fancy flavors, totally cool, but you need to think about your target market. So if you are in a small town in the middle of nowhere and you are trying to sell them, you know, cakes that have all these crazy, amazing, cool flavors, it's going to fall flat because that's not what that market either wants or needs. Now, could you convince them that it's what they want or need? Maybe, but I think in smaller towns or in smaller areas, rural areas, whatever, you're going to really struggle with that. Whereas if you are in a big city where there's a foodie culture, it's not going to be as hard. And so you can create that as your niche. And then you've also got the people to whom to market it to, the people who are interested in that stuff. So I think fancy menus are a good thing, but only if you can really have the people to sell it to and it's important to them. And if you're really willing to hang your hat on that stuff. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why I think that is. The main reason I think that is, is because personally, I would rather decorate than bake. Even though I'm a pastry chef. I would much rather decorate than bake. And so for me, abandoning the fancy menu gave me the time and the space and the money to be a decorator more than a baker. Because the fancy flavors cost more, not always, but generally speaking, cost more, right? So personally, I was glad to get rid of those flavors because it meant, let's say a cake is $500 or something, right? Whereas previously, let's say 100 went towards the cost of the cake. By the way, not real numbers. If it's costing you 100 bucks to make a cake, we got problems. But anyway, if it was costing me 100 bucks in ingredients to make that cake, okay, that's one thing. But if I could convince them to have chocolate cake and spend more money on the decoration, then that meant that only, let's say, 50 out of that 500 was going towards ingredients. And that was another 50 I could put towards decorating or I could put towards labor or I could put towards overheads or whatever. So for me, because I'd rather decorate than bake, I purposely pushed my boring flavors all the time. Now, they were not boring. They were good. They were solid. They were yummy, but they weren't terribly exciting. I mean, they just weren't, right? So there was a couple of reasons I pushed those. One, I always wanted their money spent to be in the decoration, not in the cake. Two, because I could make those recipes very quickly and very easily, it was super quick and easy for me to make money out of that stuff because, you know, I was already baking 300 chocolate cakes a week or whatever. What's another five? Who cares? So I would deliberately push people towards the simple, easy, boring flavors because there was more money in them for me just from a production point of view and a creation point of view. If I've got to start making the lemon curd from scratch and if I've got to start, you know, de-seeding the, I don't know, bananas. Are there seeds in bananas? There are. Anyway, if I start de-seeding whatever I'm de-seeding, okay, that's like a pain. And that's time and effort and money just going down the drain when I could be spending it on doing fun stuff like making flowers or wafer paper or doing some kind of cool effect on something. And so for me, I push people towards the boring, right? 
So in terms of all that kind of stuff, how do you kind of like go about this? How do you go about, can you take a boring menu and make a boring menu interesting? You know what? You totally can. And let me say that one of the ways to do this, I'll just say it from a production point of view first, is I usually recommend that you have a couple of very simple cake bases, usually a chocolate and a vanilla, and you can then doctor those up. So if you want to have the fancy flavor combinations, that's totally cool. But rather than have eight different recipes for eight different things, you're much better off having a base vanilla or just kind of a plain flavored one to which you can then add, you know, lemon zest and lemon oil, or you can add, you know, orange, or you can add some fruit, or maybe you can add some raspberries, or maybe you can put some chocolate chips in it or you know, whatever. And if you've got a chocolate cake, can you, you can turn that into a chili chocolate cake, or you can use some of the, you know, like flavors and make a raspberry chocolate cake or whatever. So from a money speed and production point of view, I generally recommend having a couple of base recipes that you can then doctor up into other things just because it'll make your life so much easier. And again, the cost is so much lower. But two ways that I have found to create fancy recipes or fancy menus without having to have it cost you the earth is two things. One, this is going to sound really dorky, but you give normal things fun names. So for example, let's say you have a chocolate cake with a whipped cream filling and sprinkles. You could call that, you know, the chocolate sundae cake, sundaes and ice cream, okay? All those things are pretty normal, sprinkles and cream, you know, fresh cream or whatever, and chocolate cake, all pretty normal. But when you put those together and give it a fun name, like Sunday Fun Day, or I don't know, that's the dorkiest name in the world. Don't use that. But if you give it some kind of fun, exciting name, I think that's a much cooler way to make an otherwise boring menu a little bit jazzed up, right? Okay, so one of the best sellers in my bakery was a white chocolate and raspberry cake with a rose water buttercream filling. Super easy. I took my white chocolate base, I threw fresh raspberries in it, pardon me, and my buttercream, I would just pour in some rose water and I would make it pale pink. So it was a white chocolate raspberry and rose water buttercream cake. Really, really simple. Didn't require any more work than my normal things. And we used to call that one, can't remember now, I think we used to call it Ispahan or whatever. It had like a very exotic sounding, vaguely Moroccan hippie kind of name to it, right? People loved that one and it was no more work than anything else. Really, really simple. Another one we used to do is we used to do a vanilla cupcake. We used to fill it with lemon curd, which is something that is very easy to make and I had on hand anyway. And we would top it with a cream cheese buttercream that we rolled in coconut and we used to call that a tropical holiday, right? Vanilla cake, vanilla, lemon, coconut, and cream cheese, tropical holiday. So we used to come up with names like that. If you had a cake that was, for example, I don't know, maybe it was a carrot cake with like a cinnamon something, 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 you could always call that, you know, what the bunny ordered or whatever. Just taking your existing base recipes and your existing base fillings, put them together in ways that are kind of fun or interesting and easy for you to make and then give them really funny names. You know, you could do a chocolate and cherry one or something and call it, you know, the Betty Boop or something. I don't know, whatever. I'm clearly not that great at the thinking of cake names on the fly. But there are some great businesses out there who do just really normal stuff. But by putting them together in interesting ways and giving them interesting names, voila, you get this kind of very fascinating sounding menu. So that's a really, really good one. There's kind of two ways to do that, right? The one way to do that is you create those combinations yourself. So your menu can actually look a lot bigger than it is. You can have chocolate, vanilla, red velvet, lemon, blah, 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 
or you can have your kind of quote unquote specialty flavors, which is Sunday Funday and Ispahan and all those kind of things, right? Which is the combinations that you have put together. And one of the other options you can do is give your clients the opportunity to create their own custom mixes, which a lot of places do, right? When they do a tasting, they'll have like five or six cake flavors, five or six filling flavors, and then a couple of icing flavors, and they get the people to put the combination together themselves. Look, on the one hand, I love that idea of like your own custom flavor. And other companies in the food industry do this too, right? Ice cream companies do this, like, you know, Cold Rock does this where you can do mix-ins. Froyo companies do this where you get to pick the base, pick the mix-in, pick the white whatever, pick the sauce. It's not an unusual concept to let people do it themselves. Where you will run into trouble with this stuff is again, when people get that feeling of overwhelm because there's too many choices. So if you want to sell that concept of like create your own custom flavor or whatever, I still would not be offering too many things that they can customize with. And I would make sure that all the building blocks of their custom option are things that are quick and easy and fast for you to make. So we want to let them feel like it's completely custom made, but it's custom made with boundaries. I think that's the important lesson here. Like that's a really important thing that we don't want them just like suddenly going, you know, completely off the grid and being like, oh, by the way, what I'd really like is that pineapple, white chocolate, whatever, strawberry thing that I mentioned earlier. We don't want them doing that. And I made that mistake in the beginning. This is embarrassing to say, but I actually said to people, have you got a favorite family recipe? Just bring it to us and we'll bake it for you. Oh my God. Worst idea ever. Because there you are trying to replicate like Grandma Mary's cake. And of course, it doesn't taste the same because Grandma Mary forgot to write down that she adds a shot of vodka to it. And all of a sudden, your customer's like, it doesn't taste like Grandma Mary's cake, doesn't you promise? And you just, oh my Lord, bad idea. Don't take on other people's recipes. I actually did a couple of mistakes in that realm. I a couple of times took on other people's recipes. A couple of times I agreed to decorate cakes other people had baked. Like people would bring me some fruitcake that their Nana from 1953 made and they'd want me to bake it it and I decorate it rather. And the thing would come into my kitchen and it would be like an inch high and they were expecting like a five inch style wedding cake. And I'm like, oh my God, I guess we're buying some dummies to stick under this thing. And it was sunken or uncooked or raw. Or, oh my God, I've just had, yeah, don't do that. And the other mistake I made, which I'm like, I'm like really embarrassing, but it's a lesson, right? It's all lessons is that I had somebody with some special dietary needs and I simply could not meet those dietary needs. It was like a list as long as my arm. It was like gluten-free, fruit-free, fructose-free, sugar-free, taste-free, air-free. I don't know. It was everything free. And I basically said, look, I can't do that. But, you know, I was, I'm not anymore, but a people pleaser. And the woman actually said to me, look, there's actually a cake mix, like a box mix that's really, really good that meets all the needs. So why don't I just go and buy you like a bunch of these box mixes and you can just make those and then decorate it. And I was like, okay, sure. Bad idea. Box mixes are not intended for big decorated carved cakes, which this was. From memory, it was like a train with multiple cars and stuff. And also I couldn't control the quality of that thing. So later when I got the feedback that the cake tasted horrible, what was I supposed to do about it? It was a box mix and I didn't even provide the bloody box mix. It was just awful. So I've made a lot of mistakes when it comes to flavors. The lesson that I want you guys to walk away with is this. Ultimately, while you know that I always tell you it's your business, your rules, you do need to bear in mind who you're selling to and what they want. And if the people want chocolate and vanilla, you know what? Give them chocolate and vanilla. You kind of have to decide how important is this particular thing to you? How much do you care about the flavor things? If you are a pastry chef and flavor matters a whole lot to you and you really are hanging your hat on that flavor thing, that's totally cool. 
But you need to be aware that part of your job as a business owner is going to be to make that flavor thing really important to the people you're selling it to because they're not necessarily going to see the importance or the value. It's a little bit like bottles of wine. You know, we don't all understand why a bottle of wine costs $100 or $150. And it takes somebody usually explaining it to us, A, why it costs that, and B, why we should care about that. That's a really, really important thing. On that same note, let me give you a recommendation. I don't drink. No religious reason, by the way. I'm just allergic. So I recently started discovering wine and people who are into wine or whatever. And I've always thought that wine is just like some really people who are full of themselves kind of environment where all those explanations of like, you know, this one has undertones of coffee and chocolate and yada yada, let me stick my nose in the air kind of stuff. I was really judgy about wine people. And then somebody called me on it and was like, Michelle, you know what? You're really judgy about wine people, but cake people are the same. You guys eat cake and you're like, this one's too grainy. That one's too sweet. This is just dry. What he's like, cake people are the same about their own product. So this person totally checked me on that and was like, you need to educate yourself rather than be wanky about this and be rude and judgy. I was like, fine. And he recommended that I watch a documentary on Netflix called Some in the Bottle. So it's Some, S-O-M-M-E, short for sommelier, Some in the Bottle. And I have to tell you that I was kind of kicking and screaming to watch this thing, but I did it anyway. And I'm so glad that I did because I watched this episode or this documentary. And firstly, it was absolutely fascinating. And secondly, it gave me such a better appreciation for the process of wine and the cost of wine and the history behind it and how it's made and the people who make it. And I honestly got an enormous sense of, oh my God, I've actually been judging this whole industry based on a couple of people and a couple of experiences when there's so much more to learn and so much more to know. And since then, I've actually drunk a couple of bottles of wine and really found myself going, oh, I kind of get it now. Yes, it will always come down to taste. The person who likes a certain kind of wine is just like the person who likes a certain kind of cake. And ultimately, yes, it's all going to come down to each individual's love of a certain flavor or a certain color or a certain profile or a certain taste or a certain whatever. But spending that hour and a half watching that documentary gave me a much better appreciation for what's behind it. And I think that that's the kind of thing that we need to think about doing. We need to educate people about why things cost what they cost, what goes into them, why they should appreciate it, whatever. And when it comes to flavor, that's particularly important. So if you're going to have this super fancy, amazing menu, by all means, go ahead, but just be prepared to market the heck out of that and do some education. And you know what? Maybe you know, it won't be very long before on every menu across the country, we are seeing this strawberry, pineapple, white chocolate situation. You just never know. By the way, in case any of you are wondering what my personal cake flavor is, I don't have one. I don't actually like cake, which makes me feel very disloyal. But I don't enjoy cake. I much, much, much prefer cookies or pies or pastries or desserts or whatever. I'm not a cake fan at all. I would just much rather read other things. I am a super mega cookie fan though. I really like cookies. And in terms of a favorite, I don't have a favorite. I just really like cookies. Except nothing's worse than biting into a cookie that you think is chocolate chips and it's raisins. No offense to my raisin friends out there. I like you too. But if I want you to be chocolate, you best be chocolate. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to The Business of Baking today. I hope you learn lots every time you listen to me, even when I'm talking about random stuff. This whole flavor thing can be a big debate, but at the end of the day, it's always going to come back down to your business your rules and also your clients. 
clients and their tastes. So let's find out what they like and then let's give them what we like, what they like rather, and save the stuff that we like for when we get to eat cake, which is not that often because we're all too busy making it. Have an awesome day and an awesome week and continue to be good at what you do and to learn stuff about the stuff that you're not good at. And in the end, we'll all get there. And by the way, in case you're also wondering, the cake, which is my personal kryptonite, is white chocolate mud cake. I have never perfected that recipe. I have never found one that I like, that's the right texture that I like, that works well consistently, that I can scale up, etc. So if you've got a white chocolate mud cake recipe that you really love, feel free to share it with me, but I'm warning you right now, I probably won't make it because at this point, I'm slightly terrified of it. <laughs> On that note, have a brilliant week and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Business of Baking podcast. You can find show notes, links, and other fun stuff for this and previous episodes at thebizofbaking.com. Until next time, may your oven stay evenly hot, your ganache never split, and may you always be in the business of being awesome.